Hi, and welcome to Contracast. My name is Kat Boyd, and I'm joined with my lovely Glamorous co-host, David Jameson. How's it going? I'm getting uh, bronzer by the day in this beautiful sunshine. More like pink. You're going like sort of, you just need like a slice of lemon on your, um, pineapple on your chest. Lemon. <laughs> sunstroke. Lemon if you're a bit uh, a bit more exotic, yeah, but pineapple will do, yeah. I'm, I'm fine, I just have been out in the sun and I'm a bit dehydrated. We also have a very special guest with us today. We are joined with, by George Hoare, who is one third of the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast. And he's here to tell us um, all about their new book called the end of the end of history which is available to buy right now on all good websites and um, you know the ones and um, so george welcome yeah thanks thanks for having me um yeah i would say sort of first time long time so yeah very glad to be on the on the podcast great we're so glad to have you join us and um, so just for our listeners who may or may not have listened to your show before um, tell us a bit about the Alpha Bunga Bunga podcast and the sort of general project behind it all. Yeah, so we started the podcast in in 2017 um, after basically the the big political events of 20 the preceding year, so particularly Brexit and uh, the election of Trump. Um, and I guess what we've been trying to do is have a kind of global a global view we call it call ourselves a global politics podcast at the end of the end of history and i'm sure we'll 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 discuss a lot about what the end of the end of history means um but yeah i think it's like it's it's ideally a place to kind of bring on people that we don't always agree with have a bit of a discussion and try to i think unpack some of the some of the key ideas and and try and make a, a bit of a route through some of the the kind of political movements and the various things that have happened in the past almost like yeah like four years of um of politics which seem to be a, a lot a lot more eventful than the than the years that preceded them so yeah that's that's the general project i guess wonderful well we are both avid listeners of your show um i know david certainly is oh i should have said that you can i need to plug it if 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 you are a listener of the pod of of the podcast of Alpha Bunga Bunga. You can subscribe at, on Patreon.com <laughs> slash BungaCast at five, ten, or thirty bucks a month, and you get various goodies depending on how much dosh you give us. So you've always got to be selling, always got to sell the product. So yeah, sorry if yeah. I neglected to do that to start with. You've always got to whore yourself out in the modern context, you know. Very much so. And it is like. Um... I mean, what I like about the podcast is the way it's kind of informed the book and it's made it's it's made me kind of more friendly to the podcast as a concept. Like at the start of the book, you actually say like, uh, you know, everyone's got a jo joke about podcasting now. It's the sort of thing that D-class A, middle-class people do. They have a podcast. But this is quite an interesting book project in the sense that you've actually used the podcast to construct your arguments to, to interview people from around the world. And it's a lot, it's a huge area of interviews by this point, whether they be sub activists or academics or whoever. Um, and you've collected that all together for the arguments in the book. So it, it makes podcasting seem like quite a serious worthwhile enterprise or at least more so yeah. than uh you know the the innumerable sports and pop music and politics podcasts 
Yeah, I mean, so we, I think, I think we're in basically in the pub. I mean, the three of us have, have known each other for for more a decade, more than a decade. Um, so we, you know, we knew each other before doing the podcast, which I think was was quite useful, just in that we were like texting back back and forth on WhatsApp, and then you know went to the went to the pub and thought, well, we could we could do a podcast. Look at all these all these other podcasts. We could do one of these. Um, and then, yeah, I think it's sort of, you know, we decided to, to maybe be a bit more sort of serious about it and think, actually, what what is it that we kind of want to know about? Um, and just use that as an excuse to have to read books before interviewing people and, you know, get get sent review copies. So save a bit of a bit of money that way as well. Um, so, yeah, I think, it you know, it's been a, it's been kind of, as you said, 200 episodes now. So quite a few different sort of perspectives. Um contained within the guests that we've had. So, David, I think you're down for the first question, if we just want to kick off. Yeah, sure. Although I did want to ask, like, um, beyond, so 10 years ago, I mean, did you did you sort of come into this from, from a given political perspective? I'm kind of interested in what the background of, perhaps you can only speak for yourself, George, but um, what was your what was your sort of political attitude before the beginning of the project? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's probably worth saying that the three of us don't agree on everything. Don't see eye to eye on, on absolutely everything by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think we'd all, we'd all kind of been, been associated with, with various groups that kind of come out of, I guess, the, the defeat of, of, of British or the collapse of kind of British Leninism to a, greater or lesser extent if you want to call it that that's a bit maybe a bit grandiose way to put it so yeah I mean <clears throat> I think the kind of casting my mind back 10 10 years or even like to 2016 I think I was probably pretty like pretty n- negative or or kind of apathetic um in general pretty kind of disillusioned so I think it's been you know to a certain extent I hope the book and the podcast trace out a little bit of the kind of in enthusiasm i think the the politicizing impact of brexit has been has been enormous and enormously positive um and i think that's kind of hopefully gives gives the whole thing a little bit of energy because i think the the kind of the period and i'm sure we'll come on to talk about this but the period of the end of history like who would who would join the 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 labor party in like 2003 2004 like 2010 it's like in, in that sort of period it, it you know politics doesn't seem particularly interesting and now I think it's you know there's so much going on that it's you know it's impossible to to not be enraged excited um kind of energized by by the the discussions and the and the kind of the conflicts that we're having at the moment so before we get on to the end of of the end of history because I think a lot of people I mean we are very familiar with the phrase the end of history if you've been on the left for the last 20 years or there around um obviously well, a phrase that has a long history, but it was used uh, infamously in left-wing circles, I suppose, uh, uh, by Francis Fukuyama uh, around the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, and he you know, said, basically, that historical alternatives to liberal capitalism had been extinguished. This is the, you can probably define the argument better than me, but this was the broad thrust. And that argument is very, very unpopular on the left and is often, as you say in the book, caricatured uh, on the left. You um, 
sort of largely endorse the, the, this idea that we, we approach, the, that we achieved the end of history uh, at the time that Francis Fukuyama was, was writing about it. And that's quite unusual, like I say, much of the left tend to dismiss it. What do you think is useful in, in Fukuyama's concept of the end of history, his use in that historical juncture? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's I think it's definitely something to take to take seriously, even if there are certain key aspects of it that I think are um are wrong that I definitely personally wouldn't wouldn't endorse. So just to kind of give maybe a bit of the background. So the this idea of the end of history taken from a nineteen eighty-nine article that, that Fukuyama, who was then working in the American State Department, wrote with the title The End of History with a question mark. Then the book comes out in 1992 without the question mark, and it's the end of history and the last man. And yeah, he, as you said, David, he basically argues that history is done. It's over with. We witnessed the fall. When, when the Soviet Union fell, uh, and this is a quote, it was not just the passing of a particular period of post-war history, but the end of history as such. That is the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. So that's like pretty bold claim. And that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, why one, it was so popular and two, it so disliked by various people because it's a pretty big sort of grandiose claim. Um, I mean, Fukuyama is obviously not the first person to think in terms of history having an end. It's an idea he takes from Hegel, this idea that history has a kind of a telos or an, an end point that it's driving towards. Marx, the idea of communism, like that's the end of the prehistory of, of mankind. Um, but anyway, so Fukuyama's this, this idea definitely struck a, struck a nerve and was, you know, it was extremely popular. And in terms of how we use it on the podcast, I think, you know, it's important just to say that it is a little bit tongue in cheek and just in that we would reject the idea that liberal democracy is the final possible form of human government, but rather that there's, he really strikes on something important, which is there is a period that started in 1989. And we, I think we, we felt that period was, had ended in 2016 and what characterized it and kind of by implication, what characterizes the period that we're in at the moment? Cause that's a really, I think that is a really tricky question. And if like, if there's been one question that we've been trying to answer across all these interviews in the podcast, it's really like what characterizes um, the current, the current period. I don't know how, how keen you are on, on having some dates fired at you, but I've got some, some to, to in the chamber, if, if, if that's useful. Go for it. Yeah. So I think the, cause I mean, this is definitely something which doesn't come out particularly well in podcasting, but I'm going to do it, going to do it anyway. So like, I think the, to put it into the, I think the context that we, we approached it with. Um, so Eric Hobsbawm, who's Marxist historian, his history of the short 20th century, I think is, um, uh, I think it's a fantastic book. And so he says in the 20th century, short 20th century, there were these three periods, 1914 to 45 was the age of catastrophe so the two world wars mm -hmm. 1945 to 73 this was the 30 glorious years or what he calls the golden years post-war boom um, particularly in western europe and then 73 to what he's to 91 is the landslide so all of these kind of um this kind of post-war class compromise essentially collapses and you have a whole set of, of crises of of um capitalism of late capitalism um as some people have have called it so yeah that's basically sort of where we, where we, why we think it's a useful idea because it raises the question, like what is it that defines that period after 89, after 91? And I think the, the feeling of like exhaustion and ending, like 
politics being quite like not about big questions but being quite dull quite boring um i think that's that's why it's a useful idea and um eric hobswam does get a, i think he gets a little mention in your book quite near the start i remember reading that bit and being like okay yeah so i know just as you said like i understand like how these these parts fit together with your um starting point being the end of history um, and the the end of that um but your book doesn't actually it doesn't really start with high politics uh, but pop culture which is you know a part of the reason i enjoyed it um i i do enjoy how uh, pop culture and politics interact um and i think that you know the things that you said particularly like in the introduction reflects our own ex- like my experience you know I'm sure David too have grown up when political resistance had been essentially nullified and we often experience rebellion primarily through popular music and consumerism um, and you mentioned the early days of techno and rave and I think the line is something like the world felt open and full of possibility at least for oneself as an individual and it really it made me think of like the the way that um you know Microsoft branded its whole enterprise in the 90s and on like where do you want to go today and you know you describe in the book that this open world like would shake off public duties um, maybe such as solidarity or collectivism. Um, and you also reference Britpop, uh, especially its invitation to Downing Street. So it's my cats having a little meow in the background. Um, but yeah, you mentioned that and, you know, the cringe-tastic Cool Britannia. And I've always sort of, I've always seen that Cool Britannia moment as a really natural part of Blair's strategy driving identity, the identity politics of the age. You know, you had like Blair's babes, you know, as like a sort to gender equality. You had Noel Gallagher who becomes this like um, caricature of what it means to be working class. Um, you know, and you also mentioned Kurt Cobain. I mean, I, sidebar I have this theory that had Kurt Cobain been alive today he would probably be completely insufferable um and have like the worst yeah. liberal politics but anyway that's almost I think that's all that's certainly true I mean I should I should say that I'm I'm not and never have been a Nirvana fan I think they're one of the three most overrated bands along with the Doors and Pink Floyd just to really rile correct like, correct on the Doors Correct, I would say. Like, I think they were really just a, they're more of a motif of like a particular a point in time and a culture, like a counterculture that's really? them. But musically, I mean, that cover of like Bertolt Brecht's Show Me the Way to the Whiskey Bar, nonsense. Yeah. And smells like um, it's just a Pixies ripoff, as Cobain said himself. <laughs> I think, in, but I think he's the, he's like an interesting figure and an important mm-hmm. one because I guess like the, the argument, that we try and make in the book is sort of two, two, the popular culture is important for at least two reasons here. One is that all of the kind of political or kind of oppositional energy that previously might've gone into or been channeled by various political projects then goes into, into culture. But that's a complete, I think that's a complete dead end. The left, I think often sort of has a refuge in, in kind of culture or, or kind of, um, countercultural ideas but in fact i think as cobain shows it's like you know he's illustrative of the way that 
even this kind of rebellion was already being commodified, sold back yeah. as oppositional. You know, c- capital was was very it was wasn't did not break a sweat at all in yeah. kind of you know in repackaging that and and throwing it back. Um, and the second thing is that I think this like um, quite I mean I'm I'm should all I mean, I'm going to annoy all the all your listeners, but I'm also really not a fan of of saying that rave is in any way political i think it's uh you know it's kind of like occupy or these kind of very it's people who are who are doing something which is you know not necessarily bad in in and of itself um but to say that it's to say that that's a kind of lasting political strategy or or is going to be building anything i think is is pretty self-serving and delusional so sorry to all the all the ravers out there but you can still go and go and rave but i mean i don't think it's 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 political it's just um it's just the outer edge of mainstream culture which is you know it's fine i think so yeah i mean it's closing off all those political alternatives so you retreat to the cultural ones um but the second the second point is that i think it also sets the scene for what happens in 2016 and this kind of like you know everything is very um so one thing about like techno music in general it's quite repetitive there's no narrative there so when you kind of have the reinsertion of politics in some way with with brexit and trump i mean this is you know maybe reading a bit too much into this but i think it's representative of the whole culture basically people can't deal with it commentators cannot understand what's happening and so the response that they have is not a uh, sort of rational one it becomes quite a uh, quite a hysterical one I remember saying that after I read that opening chapter and you talk about how it feels to be at the end of history. And what I was shocked by was the commonality, not just of the cultural experiences, right? Because those are mass commercial experiences. So it's not unlikely that a group of people in you know different parts of the world, if they come from a certain class background, for example, and a certain relationship to consumerism would have that experience, but also that the feelings attendant to those commercial experiences were also very similar. So like when I was growing up, I I listened and it was first getting political around the time, I suppose, of after 9-11, like 9-11 was the first major political thing that I kind of opened my eyes to the fact that there was a political sphere in the world and and so on. You know, I I listened to bands like Rage Against the Machine. I even bought that god-awful magazine, Adbusters. Do you remember that? And I remember like the, the feeling that I got from the book, which which really struck a chord with me, was on the one hand, I felt kind of satisfied that these things were political and were speaking to some realities in the world. But just beneath the surface, I was kind of aware that it was meaningless and not really touching the sides of anything and sort of stupid. And I couldn't, I was haunted by that feeling. I really think you get that across in the book, that feeling of being haunted, that feeling of sort of, I think I thought thought all my life, am I really living through a real historical period or are we living in this strangely muted era? And also when it comes to popular culture, one of the things you talk about is the constant nostalgia, the constant references to past subcultures that aren't really unique, that many subcultural expressions unique to our generation. Almost everything has been taken, has been cribbed from the past, from our parents' past, from Generation X, from that kind of thing and I was very aware of that even growing up that there wasn't anything really unique as a musical movement as an artistic uh, movement there weren't there aren't really literary movements in the same sense uh, anymore 
And it, though that really comes across in the book, and it's a very end of history reference. But I said at the time, it was reading the book at that point was a bit like being read by Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. You know where he can smell your uh, <laughs> your moisturizer that you put on three days ago and stuff. Um, there's an uncanniness to it, which makes me wonder um, just how many people around the globe, particularly in the West, I suppose, had a similar experience during their political awakening of this half-life where you feel very enthused and very engaged with political with politics at the same time you're very aware that there's something not right there's just there's some element missing and it's hard to place precisely what it is maybe that's just a common experience of sort of indulgent middle class nerds in their in their bedrooms i don't know yeah i mean i i i mean it's glad that it it, it kind of frightened you to read it it was that kind of Hannibal Lecter type experience that's good to hear um but I think it's you know if you if you do take a step back and think like what more define the popular culture or kind of the, the more counter or oppositional parts of that culture this idea of retromania so like not just looking back to the cultural past because every age does that but to the quite recent cultural past like Britpop is a reboot of the 60s it's like People were still people who were alive in the '90s were alive in the '60s, and they they can see that. And so it, I mean, I think it's just a sign of a. I mean, I've got a kind of a quick answer. It's just a sign of an exhausted culture. Um, but I think there's a reason for that, and I think it it relates to to what happened in the in the '80s. And, I'm sure, and we'll come on to this, I'm sure, in some of the other questions. But essentially that the dynamics that had been given to previous generations of the of basic class struggle. Um, it changed in a number of important ways. And so that cultural dynamism, which comes from that kind of mm. social and political um, struggle, wasn't there anymore. So you basically have run out of ideas. And so you just keep recycling and sampling the past. Um, and it, so it does feel um, does feel strange, I think, to grow up in that, in that period, or at least that's, I think, how the three of us um, experienced it. I, I wouldn't argue with you about um, rave, for example. Um, I, it, when you were talking about that, it made me somewhere in the back of my brain. I remember there was a maybe a story of during lockdown, there was a boy who had organised a illegal rave. And then when the police came, he said it was like an anti-capitalist action, um, which, yeah, is exactly, uh, I guess, what, what you're talking about. Um, but I think yeah. for me that like that that kind of end of history and like seeing like pop culture as, as part of that end of history, that that point is all about a kind of the resistance is like there's frivolity and it's carnivalesque. Um, but it seems today like there's quite a lot to be serious about climate change, failing economies, populist explosions, new plagues, all those sorts of things. So why do you think it is that the left continue to look to pop culture for legitimation and authenticity? Um, I mean, I see it all the time that the left is constantly looking to popular culture to try and give itself that type of edge. Um, I mean, I think I can probably predict your your answer, which is this kind of like hollowing out. But I, I wonder what your thoughts were on it. Well, if you were going to predict the answer, I now have to come with, come up with another one off, off the cuff so as not to be too predictable. Um, but no, I mean, as you were sort of asking that question, it did make me, you know, think that it's interesting that, you know, the words that you used there were legitimation and authenticity. And that's what, you know, the left looks for. Um, 
And I think that is quite telling that it's it's not it's not authority. It's not a kind of that isn't the the primary uh, political value necessarily. It's it's something else. It's something which is more of a, a kind of self expression. Um, or, or something along along those lines. Mm. I mean, and that I think is, you know, arguably a legacy of, of of 1968. I think you can read possibly too much into into that period, um, but I think it definitely plays a role of essentially up, uprooting some of the the hierarchies and the kind of the the staid old modes of political action mm. and replacing them with with something which is more um, individualized, is more is more atomized um, potentially. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I think, in fact, I think Mark Fisher is an interesting example here because I think he plays a role of of in quite a lot of this thought. And that's you know that's um, I guess a line of uh, a line of kind of political analysis that I'm not particularly sympathetic to, um, at least in certain certain kind of expressions of it, because I think it does miss that kind of central idea that if you want to be serious about about politics then you need to have some notion of authority you need to have some idea of how you're going to organize um politically and represent the interests specifically class interests of people and that isn't the kind of carnivalesque rave occupied type of um mm. action which can be satisfying um but i think it's just better to keep those things separate if you want to do politics it's one thing if you want to go and rave it's another thing and they're but you know the second of those things isn't bad but don't it's just too easy that's i guess my my kind of i'm a bit of maybe just a bit of a puritan at heart and it's too easy to say yeah going going raving and, and like that's anti-capitalist action um it just like you shouldn't let yourself off the hook i think don't i think yeah so I, I should I should add to that, you know, free Britney and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. It's an authenticity crisis as well, isn't it? There's this horror. There's a horror on the left today of like, oh, we don't represent the way the most people in society think, which can be a healthy impulse and a deeply unhealthy one, especially if you think like, well, what, what most people really care about in society is Britney Spears, right? Which is probably not true. But anyway, um, I wanted to ask. I mean, I, I think it's central to this book, um, and it's central to a lot of left thought today, serious left thought, uh, that there was a moment where, um, you know, central to this thesis of the end of history is a, a, a class political act or series of actions, which is the removal of working class agency from the stage of history, uh, the, the disappearance of a mass working class agency, political project, etc. Um, and that, that kind of underpins this entire period. I mean, we'll get on to discuss it later, but you talk about the problems of attempting a left-wing political project when that doesn't manifest itself uh, and, and the problems that creates for left-wing politics. Um, but this can almost become like a mystical thing. And it's the, it's the million-dollar question, or however, how expensive that question is, whatever, <laughs> at this point. It's the big question of, of left-wing politics is, why has that situation occurred? And why has it persisted for so long? Why has it persisted throughout all these decades now um, that the working class has remained at arm's length from not just one or two or three areas of political life, but basically all areas of, 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 of political life and, and many areas of public engagement beyond formal politics. Um, so 
of of the I always think there's kind of three three major inputs you can you can claim for this problem. One is um, a series of defeats across large parts of the world for the workers' movement. In this country, that was things like the miners' strike and some other major industrial disputes as well, but there were actually simultaneously many severe defeats for working-class self-organisation in the period. There was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the enormous ideological blow that that represented to any alternative to capitalism. And And a third, which I suppose dovetails with the first, is changes in the structure of the global economy at both a national and a global level which reorganized economic life and disrupted patterns of working class self-organization up to that point i mean but perhaps you have others but what is what is the what explains this decades-long uh disappearance from public life of of working of the working class on a mass level yeah, I mean, I have to say, I would agree, in particular, with two of the things that you that you outlined. Um, and just to add a little bit to the first one, that's the political defeat of the working class. I think that, you know, that the the scale and consequences of that, I, I think we still have, really have to get our our head around. There's a really, I mean, I'm talking about our book, but can also praise other books. There's a really fantastic book by James Hartfield, which I don't know if you've you've come across, called The Death of the Subject Explained. And he essentially links the uh, political defeat of the working class in the UK, for example, in the 80s, as you said, David, to the theoretical reorganisation of politics away from a notion of of subjectivity or kind of working class collective agency. Um, This idea that the working class can remake society becomes less and less important less and less central to the politics of the of the left and we can talk for ages about what is the left and what does it mean but i think that hits the nail on the head that the political defeat became you know became a a kind of central part of the way that politics was has been thought about so i think that is that is absolutely of of primary importance and you talked about the collapse of the soviet union and economic changes and i think those are both you know extremely important but one thing i would say is that there's been a, a, a dynamic of simultaneous elite and mass withdrawal. So that hollowing out of politics, which which Peter Mayer, for example, is, is closely associated with, which means that the political structures that we have are not necessarily intended to mobilize working class people into politics, but instead to do something very different. They are essentially sequestered in, in Westminster, like divorced from their social bases, hollow internally and that that is a a dynamic which also plays into eu membership and and the changes in the the state that that's effectuated but i think that it's definitely worth kind of reflecting on the fact that that is that has been the central dynamic of of politics has been a a hollowing out and a a demobilization of of people so it's not designed at, at present to for mass politics so that's why i think in particular brexit was so important because it kind of turned that on its head to a certain extent or revealed some of the contradictions and limitations in the, the existing political structures that we that we had um i think one s- symptom or one kind of sign that that maybe this um could be changing or that the that kind of retreat of working class and mass politics up until that period of 2016, we're in a slightly different period now is that there was a moral panic. I remember this in the, in the 2010s about apathy, like clearly 
there was a problem with legitimating the system because politicians were always trying to have ways to get people more involved in politics, get people more interested. Like, why are these idiots not kind of voting or not kind of engaged and not like reading all the things they need to read to be good, good political citizens? And then pretty much straight after 2016, the moral panic became instead about ignorance, that people were low information voters or that they didn't know what they were doing or actually they should really probably get back in their box. And I don't want to sound like, you know, rave too much about this, but I think it it's definitely something to experience that firsthand and to be on the side of the Brexit debate that that we were or that at least that, that um, Phil and myself were, that, you know, there was a real kind of um, uh, threat to and worry about the position of, of various um, people in politics when there was a suddenly uh, not, not it, there weren't the movement the movements and the organizations to really put this into practice but there was a threat of the return of the people to politics um that's really interesting george i mean i did notice this um when you're talking there it just reminded me of it um that you know you do have the starting point of 2016 um, but obviously, like for me, the, the starting point uh, is probably 2014 when the Scottish independence referendum, which I think has a lot of similarities, which obviously David and I came on your podcast and we had that type of discussion. But I do remember the, the questions about, you know, apathy and hand-wringing about apathy. But what Scottish independence, the, the referendum on independence and Brexit really proved was that, see, when the stakes are high, people will mobilize, like people will engage, like, and part of the issue with politics. And, you know, I see quite a lot on the left at the moment, this kind of like uh, refocusing on localism because they've kind of like lost national politics. So we've got to like refocus on like local issues and local elections and then wonder why like nobody gives a shit. It's <laughs> because it's like the stakes are so incredibly low and, you know, you have to like look at um, how referendums have become... Uh, almost poles of attraction for class politics um i mean that's that's not what i was going to ask but i mean it was just as you were talking there that it, it occurred to me no it's a good it's a good point and i think the um the dividing line at 2016 we talked we went back and forward a lot in the writing of this mm. and i'm i'm particularly i i have to depart from the, the the collective authorship and say i'm particularly keen on to say that 2016 was was that dividing line because I do think that you know that Brexit plays a this might just be my my English parochialism it could work it could well be um, but it plays an important role as a as a dividing line as a kind of this is the first um, first real challenge to the EU which is this this institution which represents so many of the things about the post politics that was dominant um, during the end of history that it's just I think it's a really signal kind of um event but that of course could mean that the or in fact it almost certainly does mean that whatever led to that led to that kind of um mm. expression was already in place many years before so yeah i mean it's it's always quite arbitrary having these like these certain dates to divide up the the world but um yeah i think it's 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 useful to a certain extent yeah yeah i think it is um I mean, the the whole kind of like the end of the end of history brand, if you like, um, I think is, is really interesting. 
and we've also we've already spoken about like Fukuyama and like what that end of history means and like your your views on it. Um, but for me, there's a fairly obvious problem, which is that as we see like these referendums become poles of attraction for class politics, whilst you know capitalist democracy is failing everywhere, there's still no actual serious force that's claiming to represent something better than capitalism and I just wondered like why is that why is there no serious force that seems to be able to um represent something better and is there a hope of do you think that there's a hope of alternatives to capitalism re-emerging so yeah, I mean, I think this is a really good question. And there's so just to take the first the first part, and this is on the end of the end of history. I think that's the the current period is a is kind of a double negative. It's the ending of of this period of the end of history without anything that can can bring into effect a new a new period. I mean, personally, I would say it's quite it's quite evident that at the moment we have this combination of a really apparent decay of society like a prolonged and deep legitimation crisis combined with a defeated disorganized um demoralized working class um there's no force in society capable of revolutionarily reconstituting it to use the, the kind of the older language and i think that is still the the point of reference that i would that i would i would i would have i mean and in terms of alternatives to capitalism i think I mean, I would have to say that I don't agree with that idea of alternatives to capitalism. I think it's about, you know, to, to go back to the, the the title of the podcast, Alf Hebunga, it's, it's about like Alf Hebung, it's about transcending capitalism. And there's only one force in society that, that can, that can do that. And that is, that is the organized working class. So mm. I think in the absence or, I mean, that's, a, you know, pretty like bog standard, like Marxist reading, I would, I would say. I mean, and so in that sort of situation, you don't want to have to reach for the the morbid symptoms phrase, but that's that's essentially what you what you do yeah. have. You have different sorts of capitalism: the eco capitalism, techno capitalism, neo feudalism to go kind of in a different direction, uh, universal basis income, and fully mm-hmm. automated luxury communism. These all types of capitalism. Yeah. Um, because the only the only, and I wouldn't say alternative, but the only like progressive step in terms of his, historical progress. Um, of working class power is not is not on the um it's not on the uh, the horizon at the moment and the reason for that is that you know that that fo- that social force was was defeated and di- disaggregated and and demoralized and demobilized i mean and that's you know that might i'm using a lot of words which might make it sound like you know i'm quite negative about it but actually i'm extremely positive i think mm. the possibilities for this sort of of political project um which is about working class power are greater than they have been for any, any period during the end of history so we're we're in a possibility we're in a situation of possibility if we're prepared to put in like 25 years or whatever of of work to, to do it um because i think the most likely situation post neoliberalism and i think this is you know the sort of situation we're moving to now is a kind of is probably like something worse than the present i don't know how you guys have enjoyed that's not the right word how you guys have experienced the pandemic but it certainly suggests that there is something which is like which is worse than 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 the current organization you know a a very um 
a very atomized and and uh, a sort of society which which has uh, a lot of very serious problems and and no no solutions to them, um, but has basically nothing other than stasis to keep it keep it moving forward because there isn't that alternative force that can 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 take can take control basically. Mm. I mean. It's thinking thinking about how you emerge from the end of history, right? I mean, it it, it strikes me sometimes that I, I agree, like that the, the defeat is very very profound, right? So you could look at it in terms of there's layers of rubble above us. Do you know what I mean? Where the idea of a social transformation of a mass working class politics is very deeply submerged at this point. There's not a living organizational memory of it. You know what I mean? People don't, we, we've reached a point in the development of history where people don't say, remember when we as working class people had a huge amount of influence over say, industrial policy in Britain, you would have to be very old and, and very well acquainted with that past at this point to even remember that that was once a thing. So there it, it, I think you're right, it implies a long journey. But there's other factors here. It's not just that there was a physical, as it were, political defeat for the working class in the sense that the unions were dismantled, old industrial communities were broken up, you know, political parties were hollowed out. I mean, these are very uh, coherent, you know, uh, uh, they kind of manifest these sorts of things. There have also been psychological changes in society and ideological changes which have attended this stuff. You talk, and I think it's not really recognised enough how important this is, the retreat from sort of the position of public citizen to private self. You know, for, for a long time on the left... You've had people say things like, and I think to an extent it was groping towards the truth. You know, people would say things like, uh, well, the industrial front has collapsed, right? Working class strength and industry is dissipated. And what this has meant is that working class um, activity has relocated, say, to street level movements, or it's relocated into, say, an electoral thing like Corbynism, right? But the, the much more... Or, or you, you get people, as, as Kat says, well, the working class doesn't see its interests represented at a national level anymore. It sees them interested in the communities at a local level. The real movement isn't from the workplace to the streets or the political party to the community. The real movement is from public man, you know, like in that, the name of that book, For the Public Man, to private self, the retreat inwards into one's own psychological life, slightly less insular, you know, into one's own relationships, family relationships, friends, um, you know, people narrativizing their own lives, experiential capitalism, you know, all this, all this kind of stuff. Um, I mean, how does that get broken down? And the question that hung over for me reading that section of the book was, um, you know, that what I'm scared of, in a way, is that this actually has deeper roots that go all the way back, say, to the Second World War and the growth of liberal humanitarianism, the growth of the idea that none of us have the right to propose a grand solution to society's problems uh, and that this is an inherently dangerous totalitarian thing and that all we have the right to do, and you get this in, in the contemporary leftism as well, you don't have the right to tell someone else how they should do something, live their life, organise their society. The most you have the right to do is decide how you organise your own morals, <laughs> uh, you know, adjudicate your own conscience, etc., uh, etc. Et how how is something as abstract a cultural and ideological change as that overcome? 
mean, can I just say, like, the thing David's talking about, about that being prevalent on the left, it's like, um, you know, the uh, the the railway dilemma or whatever it's called. What's, what's the name for that sort of thought experiment? Yeah, the trolley problem. The trolley problem, except the person who is, like, standing at the lever on the contemporary left has a speech bubble saying, but who am I to pull the lever? Like, that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, I don't have an easy solution, unfortunately. Sorry. Um, I don't have one simple trick that capitalists hate that you can just kind of take away and do. But I think, you know, the, I talked earlier about authority. And this, I think, is a, a concept that, you know, at least, which I, I've found myself sort of returning to again and again, like this idea from Rousseau, like, what is it to be? like an active rather than a passive citizen. Like what is it that allows, yeah, allows you essentially to feel like you have the authority individually and collectively to put into place a, um, a, a, a political solution to, to, to social problems or, or like, you know, to put it more directly to, to, to kind of impose a rational plan on society. I mean, that's, that is a really big question. Um, and I think, yeah, there's definitely a big cultural element of it. We have lost this idea of subjectivity, of being like an active, being a, kind, a, um, a rational individual who makes decisions, takes responsibility for those decisions. Um, and that's the, the basis of, of society. And that's an old enlightenment idea. And, and if, that's, if that's gone, then, you know, there's no hope really. But I don't think it is. I think it's been under really sustained attack um really been undermined we you know we're now told that we we can be kind of tricked by social media we can be conned into buying things all this sort of thing but actually you know that's where the, that's where all all kind of socialist all, all you know marxist politics starts is with the individual being able to to kind of to to make decisions and to take responsibility and to kind of build projects with political authority so i mean how are you like do anything about this practically is a big big question but i think i think that's sort of what i would lean towards is thinking that there must be there must be something about about the the left's kind of instinctive turning away from authority which really is illustrative and that's really where to kind of to push things forward and to try and develop a, develop things maybe yeah, no, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, I, I was obviously hunting in the book for something, right? Because it, I instantly agreed with what so was, was the framing of the question so much that I was kind of hunting around in it for uh, how do we pull the lever, right? Which is a, a, a question beyond the scope of the book, it must be said. I mean, it's kind of touched on um, here or there. But um, I mean, there's a, an excellent section in the book, again, much of which I agree with, um, called uh, Protest All You Like, which is a, a sort of brief history of recent social movements, most of which I dare say we've all been involved in one way or the other. Um, where you, and again, I mean, I think this is a, a like critique properly understood in the German philosophical school is exploring the limits of something, not dismissing it, not just saying, well, that was a load of old shite. It shouldn't have happened, right? We should have been doing something else with our hands, with our time, uh, than, than, you know, say the anti-war movement or the student movement or Occupy or the anti-aesthetic movement and so on. Um, but, I mean, I suppose my uh, the question I took away from it was, but it was a wee bit... 
again, I've got another, I've got another end of history film reference, which is uh, uh, the Sixth Sense. Right after reading that section, after reading that section of the book, um, I had a dream where uh, I found out like Bruce Willis's character. Sorry to ruin the film for you if you're one of the three people on planet Earth who's never seen it. Um, I find out like Bruce Willis's character that I've actually been dead for the whole period of the film, right? So I found out that all the way from me being a, 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 a school-age um, arse who reads ad busters and listens to, you know, uh, The Prodigy, right? Uh, all the way through to uh, now, I'd actually been dead, right? And I hadn't actually participated in anything with any meaning, right? Um I suppose <laughs> it's quite haunting. I suppose what I'm asking is, do you think, I mean, do you think that that, that repoliticization, uh, that there are things going on now and even before 2016, which have aided in that repoliticization? The, the example that occurs to me is the anti-war movement, right? Which you, the, the, the limitations of which you discuss in the book, but it did actually have um, a, politi- a politicizing influence. It, Basically, Corbynism, and this is underestimated by people who either came from the student movement into the Labour Party or who are old hands on the Labour left. Neither of these groups particularly want to admit this. But Corbynism has basically stopped the war in the Labour Party, right? Um, and that's why it had such a preponderance on, on questions of foreign policy, for example. But like, if you look at the average Corbyn rally in 2015, I'm pretty sure it looks like a stop the war rally from 2003 through 2007. And one of the points you make in the book, and I hope you're right about this, I'm actually not as convinced of this, is that one of the things that the Sanders and Corbyn and the left populist movement did was destroy horizontalism. Please, please let that be true. The dumbest idea which has emerged in the left in in recent decades. Um, But doesn't that show that even these social movements which are necessarily limited by their historical conjuncture, they can build over time to help the repoliticization of, of the present period. Yeah, I mean it's a good it's a good question. I mean there's there's I guess on the point of horizontalism, um I think that touches again, I don't, you know, don't want to force it as a as a theme of the conversation, but again touches on the idea of authority. If nobody is willing to take um authority is nobody to, to not just to take authority individually but to build it collectively then you are left with a, a you know a, a somewhat ridiculous situation where you have a, a supposedly political organization that cannot cannot um internally make decisions to to, to create demands um do i on on reflection has have have uh, kind of the, the corbyn and sanders campaigns kind of um destroyed that model of organizing on the left i don't i don't know i don't i don't think so because there is still potentially something to be to be gained in certain sorts of material sort of situations by having a bit more diffuse responsibility within an organization not trying to be sort of too too cryptic but like the idea that in certain kind of culture wars struggles you could have um there is a there is a there is a kind of a value to having a um a kind of like everybody takes responsibility so nobody's accountable sort of sort of um, um, position. No, I mean, but to the kind of the main point of the question, can these, can political movements serve to, to repoliticize? 
yeah i think it's a it's a good question like where does the impulse for politics come from um and how is that catalyzed and 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 mobilized and i think you know ultimately my my (laughs) impulse would always be that it comes from you know comes from a contradiction in in capitalism it comes from the fact that labor and capital have opposite interests and there's no reconciling them you can't paper over that um there's always going to be some some conflict some struggle generated by that um and the the question is like how is that how is that managed on one side and how can you organize it um on the other that might not be a very satisfying answer though but it's a it's a difficult question i mean you've got to cut me some slack there's um I mean, I, I got so annoyed with horizontalism that it made me a bit sick. Because you also say in the book, you know, we shouldn't also rehabilitate the idea of the charismatic leader. And indeed that some people on the right do this and will do it, continue to do it as a response to the continued de-democratization of, of, of society. But, um, do you know, there's this, it's a thing I think Zizek might have pointed out. There's something almost hilarious about the fact that a generation of horizontalist movements resulted in, and, and like, you know, like feminist movements and, and, and politics that um, focused a lot on individual personality and interrelational behavior and so on, ended up in the Corbynism and Sandalsism, sort of uh, charismatic parties, like party leaderships. Um, and the, the, the guys who are leading them are old white men who are almost sort of Abrahamic figures <laughs> leading us out of the desert. They almost couldn't have been more stereotypically old world and not of the kind of kind of nouveau left sort of, uh, you know, identity and in interpersonal politics. Well, I think it, it shows what happens when the, um, you could say sort of the, the ideological um, factors around horizontalism meet with the material reality of these holly, hollowed out party structures you do get um a kind of you know a populist type structure which is essentially to say you have a you know you have a, a leader and then the, the base is is kind of um not very well connected there aren't those intermediary institutions within the party um or there they are but they don't work in the way that 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 they could um and that's you know i think hardly surprising given Labour, Labour, for example, the massive increase in membership around the kind of Corbyn period, mm-hmm. which went against all the other social democratic parties in Europe, um, but that that wasn't that didn't instantly democratise the party. I mean, I personally uh, am of the opinion that the Labour Party is, you know, is 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 done and dusted at this point, and that's and that that's a good thing. Um, in fact, it's a necessary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I think there's, you know, there have been some some sort of some interesting analyses of, of what really happened with all of the new uh, members who who came in and what and and why it was that there was um, and that sorry and that this the uh, debate and the conflict was so kind of uh, rancorous within the Labour Party because there wasn't any wider um, terrain for that to happen. So you, you had these, these are kind of essentially like, this is where the politics was happening um, of a certain sort was within the Labour Party rather than a kind of broader uh, canvas. Um, I mean, we were talking about those kind of like Abrahamic figures of <laughs> Sanders and Corbyn, these, these older men, uh, you know, leading the, 
the charge, if you like, leading us out of the desert. Um, but I feel like, you know, the pendulum is kind of like swung back the other way. Obviously, uh, it's not going very well for Starmer. And that's, I mean, we're recording this before the result in Bailey and Spin, which I'm sure lots of people will be watching with interest. Um, and in the book, you make this distinction between post-politics and anti-politics. I just wondered, like, do you not, like, I, I get the distinction and I get, like, the points that you make, but don't you think that mainstream centrist politicians are having a little bit of a renaissance? Like, I'm thinking of Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and, you know, that there is a, a popular investment in the technocratic elite, um, even the, like, the core like functions of the state i'm thinking very specifically of um particularly fauci in the u.s like i don't know if you've been following this online but you can get fauci candles a fauci wallet um like there was like i've been watching quite a lot of this stuff on tiktok there's you know people getting fauci tattoos like so there's this kind of like really popular investment in these technocratic these figures of the technocratic elite and but also Mueller and like people like that I just I wondered like how you reconcile though that phenomenon with the argument more generally no I think that's so Fauci is an interesting example that kind of sounds like a combination of Fendi and Gucci so it could be a good a good brand good high fashion uh technocratic <laughs> brand no i think it's a like just just to kind of you know rehearse the distinction um because i think it is a you know it's a, a you know a, another really good question but the so the idea of post politics this is you know the characteristic politics of the end of history so this is like 1989 to 2016 a form of government that tries to foreclose all political contestation by emphasizing consensus kind of getting rid of ideology and ruling by recourse to evidence um, and expertise rather than interests or ideals. And so that's, you know, that's been quite explored in, in the literature quite a lot. Um, and then anti-politics, the way that we essentially sort of think about this is it's a rejection of the political establishment and its managerial approach to governing society. So it's just essentially that, that it's not exactly t- technocracy and populism, but there's certainly mm-hmm. elements in, in both um, that the map on there. Um, and I, you know, I think it's it's something which um, um, has been pointed out that there is now this techno populist synthesis. That popular, um, there is a high level of popular support for technocratic modes of governance. There is characteristically appeals both to the people and to the science at the same time. Um, and I think Boris Johnson is a good example of this. And the handling of of COVID really hit, does show that these things are not um, perhaps particularly opposed that they can be united quite quite well and quite effectively and in fact some so chris bickerton and, and carlo um in venezia chetti they've 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 got a, a new book out which is essentially on this exact thing and they say well techno populism is the logic of democratic mm-hmm. politics when you don't have like all of these like intermediary institutions you kind of short circuit the the links between the you know representatives and people and so you have to play both sides at once so you have characteristic mm. appeals to to the people alongside evidence and sage and all this kind of, mm. kind of stuff so i mean yeah i mean so that that is a it's a it, i mean 
I would say the question then becomes with reference to the, that kind of post-politics, anti-politics distinction in the book is whether we're seeing here like genuinely popular support for technocratic modes of governance um, or whether it's kind of the last bastion of the managerial classes kind of attempt to hang on to some sort mm. of legitimacy and power. I mean, and I, I don't really know the answer um, to that, but I think in either case, it seems like this kind of popular investment in the technocratic elite and the deep state is, is, is quite brittle. I mean, I think in the sense that there has been relatively high support for lockdowns in, in mm. the UK, but part of that sure it's part of that explanation surely has to be that there was no alternative offered like what is there was no um no real political contestation i think covid was experienced as a public health crisis and an economic crisis but not a political yeah. crisis and so that we don't really know the answer to that because we don't we haven't really i don't think we haven't really tested what these what this sort of support looks like because there's no there's not been a, a kind of uh, a systemic alternative as yet i mean i was really interested in the book to see you talk about uh, techno-populism, like this kind of hybrid of uh, technocracy and populism. And it seems that the most successful politicians are combining those those two things. Um, I think that it's crucial for us um, to understand that combination in relation to our own experience in Scotland, um, where Nicola Sturgeon is simultaneously the voice of the establishment, but also the voice of the resistance to the establishment. Um, and I just wanted to know how stable do you think these new compound, compounds of technocratic and populist rule are? Yeah, it's a, I don't really know. I think the, there is clearly a, um, there's something quite contradictory at the core of what they're trying to do at the one and the same time appeal to a legitimacy that comes from you know from from the people and then from expertise and those two things are not are not the not the same um unless you somehow make an argument and this is what um what could could well be done that there is a sort of common sense in the people so you need somehow to and but this isn't what as you know Sturgeon's doing or what Johnson's doing that there is a kind of common sense in the people and that's what needs to be to be mobilized and you could have some weird sort of voting systems of people kind of pressing buttons and that's what what the the, the policy is um but it's it strikes me that the there is a because there there is that contradiction that there is a certain sort of weakness um there so to, to look at some of the the kind of examples of techno-populism, some of the precursors, New Labour, um, the way that they kind of pioneered a lot of this polling technology, which means that you can sort of triangulate and, you know, use some of the technocratic modes of, of like market research alongside the legitimacy. This is what people think. This is what people want. I mean, that that project obviously ran its ran its course. Um, and so there's there's a there's a shelf life um to it but i mean it's difficult really to say um how long that shelf life is going to be because there aren't really you know if if as i mentioned before that chris and uh, chris bickerton and carlo um spook is if, if they're right then this is like the 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 rules of the game at the moment so everybody's doing different sorts of techno populism it's it's you know but everybody has to do it because those are the things you have to appeal to then it's really you know it's really tricky to say what 
in the future could could be could be an alternative to that yeah, it was, i mean it's a good question again it's like i don't know <laughs> it should have been the short answer i'm uh, uh i'm really interested to read that book as well because um because of the special application it has in Scotland. I don't know if it actually deals with the Scottish case, but we used to say until very recently, oh, isn't Scotland the peculiar case? And now I think it's actually not, and it's maybe the, the road to the next step for a lot of countries along this road. Because if you, I mean, it's in, it's it's come from Scotland to the United States. You know, it's the, uh, and the, the weird thing about it is you really can, as Kat says, get investment, popular investment, and at least among layers of the middle class and, and so on. I mean, um, I think there's little doubt at this point that Biden has quite successfully demobilized social movements in the United States um, so that there is a relationship um, between these, these things. Nicola Sturgeon has certainly successfully demobilized popular efforts in Scotland, particularly around the independence question. And whole areas of the middle strata are absolutely in love with this formation of government. It exercises an almost hallucinogenic element uh, over them, over parts of the media, the legal establishment, the scientific establishment, NGOs, academia. I mean, um, you know, some of the stuff that the Scottish government's been getting away with in the last couple of years is really astonishing. Um, um, but since we, we, we're uh, constantly advertising this book <laughs> that's not the end of the end of history, I would definitely recommend to people that they buy it. Um, actually, I mean, not just to slobber in praise over it, I think that this is a, like a necessary manual for anyone who's getting involved or who's interested in politics from a left-wing perspective in the current period in terms of it being an overview of like literature from the last 30 or 40 years, but also with, with, um, with insights. I mean, I think that these are the discussions we need to be having. Um, you, you, in, in the book you have, you posit three new uh, ideologies for uh, the, the coming period, for the 2020s. Um, and in fact, I think, and this is part of the point, you can actually see a lot of them already. This isn't a kind of far-flung prediction. A centre-left that continues to hold on to elements of the fading neoliberal consensus. A centre-right, which is more adaptable and reorganises uh, different class elements um, into its coalition. And the Tories, I suppose, are a good platform for that. And then a, a threat from a kind of populist authoritarian, populist, an authoritarian far right, which might pick up some of the slack if the, where those centre-right projects aren't successful. I mean, do you think that there is any hope? I know we're, we're talking in it only in the next few years, but do you think that there's any hope of a, uh, a more radical left breakthrough if even if only with modest success uh, in 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 the coming period and what do you think um the what do you think that project should be i know this is a because if you had the answer to it you'd be doing it right but let's just play around with the idea um what do you think the radical left should be doing um that would be meaningful so i mean this is obviously the in some ways the most important question like you know what do you what do you do about it um and i think just a bit of kind of like a bit of background um because i do have an answer i'm prepared to you know to stick my neck out and and and, and answer that question might or might not be convincing um but i think the, the the context here to go back to the to to the book and the the kind of framework there 
is that we we're experiencing or we have been experiencing a new a new kind of phase of of class conflict so we which we kind of transitioned to into towards the end of the 20th century the working class defeated and disorganized that you know that happened in the 80s in the UK as we've we've talked about this kind of developed and in some of the ways that we've also discussed um but this has you know really profound effects as well on on the capitalist classes across the world like the that dynamic of class struggle means that so capitalists don't get their their kind of dynamism from their innate genius at all it's from it's from class struggle it's from the threat of working class organization and power so without that kind of um historical dynamic playing out in exactly the same way this is my personal take and this is something which is not which doesn't i think come through in the book because i think it's been in some of the discussions around the book which is which has come out and i think i should you know put my put my neck out and say this is what i think is that the field is then comparatively more open for like for essentially middle class political projects and that's that does come through in the book and that's but i think it's come through even more more sort of strongly recently that you have it's not necessarily mass politics but it's still class politics and you have these kind of cultural uh, so politics at the moment looks like a lot of culture culture wars things but actually there's a material basis um there and i think in the book that's you know some of the things that we we sort of characterize the left as this kind of technocratic do-gooderism it's kind of not it's it's deliberately a non-majoritarian um class politics um for the for the, the middle class essentially or the pmc or the petty bourgeoisie or however you want to call it i mean you know we can talk about that some other time but like so what do you do about this sort of situation well i think one really big question is like how you well actually maybe it's not that important though how you orient yourself if you want to develop a political project to the left quote unquote the left like is this a is this um essentially the the group of people you want to talk to or is it better to just put it in class terms and say actually you know it's working class it's not the left and those two things maybe you know they're they've never been exactly the same thing and maybe it's just time to lose that kind of language but i think the the kind the i guess the real practical question from from my point of view at least is how you how you move from that kind of defense of of democracy and freedom of speech that i think you have to engage in we need those bourgeois rights as they were once called to, to transcend capitalism how do you move from that to a kind of um organization or a, a project that is going to look to to um have a, a, a class politics for for the working class and that's like i don't know it seems completely uh ridiculously like yeah so use the word grandiose a couple of times but that's exactly what it would be for me to say yeah it's it's an easy solution here we just need a professional organized revolutionary party you know here's 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 my you know here's my list sign up to it but as i said the the situation of i think like the in in britain at least of of brexit having really sunk labor it looked like at one point it was going to split the conservatives i think it's instead split labor it does mean that i think we're going to see in the coming years um a clearer um picture where it becomes more and more obvious that there is no political representation for for working class people maybe the tories will make a bit of a move towards this but that's not their base that can there's always going to be a really big tension within there because that's not the people that you know the the the, the home counties the tory members are not going to want the entire capacity of the state 
rerouted to the to the left behind areas which they don't really care about um so i mean that's what i think we have to do um, is some some sort of project which looks to put political authority as relatively central looks to defend and extend brexit and you know 25 years time you can see how successful it's it's been but i don't i mean I, if you have a, an easier kind of way to do it than that i'm i'm all ears because that sounds like quite a lot of work i mean it's actually quite fun in in a way or like quite rewarding um doesn't you know you're not going to have dreams that you're uh, that you're you're dead in in this period i think there's there's going to be a bit more kind of kind of going on but yeah i mean we we had in an in an earlier version of the book we had a kind of like this this, this is our solution um but then we thought no this we, we, we can't we can't put that out there because it's just it's just ridiculous and also you know it's it, pe people would just think you know what is what is this kind of book doing to say right here's the solution to all the problems um so yeah i guess it's i think to put it a bit more coherently and succinctly i think essentially it's a period for for theory um i mean that's might be quite self-serving as a podcaster but i really don't think we have the the answers to the question is there another mode of organizing than a professional kind of organized party like what is it that we actually need to do i think that that is still to be to be uh, to be determined at this point great um yeah that was really interesting i mean and thanks for sharing your solution um with uh, us is it a solution i think it's uh, like is it a solution i mean i'm not like a sort of a time for theory is not like <laughs> <laughs> doesn't, uh, doesn't like doesn't make my heart race no but i mean that's i think that is the i guess i wanted to kind of be a bit provocative and just in yeah. saying like it's not time for action because yeah. the structures to for that action on there it's not it's not time yeah. for like one final push and we'll get there it's not time for any of the things that you know i think we've all heard at various different points in the past you know mm. past decades yeah. whatever it's really all those old models don't really work and so you know it's probably a time for like for, for trying new things and those things not working maybe but um yeah yeah and so th that's that's theory right i don't mean, I mean like going no 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 no, no. Going I, know. To library. I know i mean yeah. put some ideas into practice um so i time for, time for theory and praxis how about that <laughs> um i mean i think that it's it's a solution. I mean, listeners can uh, can feedback on what they what they think of it. I mean, my a lot of my political outlook at the moment is defined by what I would call the politics of rupture. Like, I'm very like interested in like there is a small crack in this thing. Like, I mean, or like a big crack. How can like the left like prize that crack open because I think that there's this general process of disintegration happening like Britain's terminal crisis the crisis of the Labour Party the crisis of the British state and um, I mean this was always the big problem for for someone like Corbyn is like you know even if he um was to get elected he still inherits this um the the quote-unquote problem of ireland the problem of scotland like these sorts of things and i think that there are little or big 
cracks appearing everywhere and what I think is important for the left is to sort of to get your to get your foot in there and begin to wedge things apart break things up disrupt yeah yeah but just just one thing to to add to that I think that idea of politics of rupture is is I I, I, I like that phrase but that's why I would say the Corbyn project was always doomed to fail because mm. there was a very real rupture like 2016 mm. that was the rupture mm. and what happened yeah. what I mean it's it's you know obviously being being there so I was just about to go into a to a rant but like to be analytic about it like the left threw its weight behind the status quo against rupture like that's what happened yeah so I mean maybe that is maybe that you're right then it is about thinking where where do those ruptures happen and what what do you do about them but like i mean the the most maybe that's a i'm being too negative but the more recent kind of experiences that that there was a process of shutting down that that potential rupture because brexit was potentially very very disruptive um and and in fact turned out to be but corbyn was unequivocally you know on 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 the the side on you know on the wrong side Mm. Um, and you can explain that a number of different ways but I think that's what happened. I, I think I think this is an important thing, though, if we're talking about like, oh God, that Gramsci phrase again about you know the interregnum, right? If if this is an interregnum, right? Um, I mean that we use the word interregnum in the book deliberately. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You got you got to avoid that particular uh... find synonyms for it. Just click, you know, right click on word. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> As, uh, as someone who's basically written every day about politics for about six years, that has been my best friend, the uh, the Google thesaurus. Um, yeah, but I, I think like, I think a major, look, definitely the year 2016. I mean, I, to go back to that, I agree with, with you, George, I think that is the seminal year, right, where, where there is a watershed, an obvious watershed in history. And I think it obviously split the left. I mean, it obviously split the left between people who, who, whose basic attitude was, be careful what you wish for. This a kind of neurotic, anxious fear is, is, a, is a major psychological part of contemporary leftism. And they're not just going to say, I mean, they obviously said it to us in 2014 about the British state, oh, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, you'll get rid of the British state and you'll end up in something worse. By the way, the, the thing that annoys me about that kind of like, it's an almost sub OCD quality to it is I assume that we'll go from one difficult position to another. You're just describing human history, right? <laughs> Apart from anything else. Um, and then it was with Brexit. Oh yeah. You've got this great critique of the European union. Be careful what you wish for, because the thing that's coming next is much worse. Oh yeah. You don't like the democratic party, but now Trump's in and he's a fascist. There's a fascist in the white house and you'll be you know, laughing on the other side of your face in a couple of years when people are being sent to the camps. Here's the thing I think is coming next is the Labour Party, right? I, I agree with you, George. I think it's days done. I almost think it's irrelevant at this point whether or not you think it's a good thing that the, the Labour Party is going to go or a bad thing. But I guarantee you there will be a lot of people on the left saying, be careful what you wish for. Yeah, the Labour Party is dying and you're laughing about it. But in 10 years' time, Britain will be like Hungary, right? We'll have, or, you know, something like that. We'll have a centre-right party and a far-right party, and you won't be laughing then. I think if the left keeps subjecting itself to this kind of anxiety-driven paralysis, that's when it makes itself totally, totally irrelevant. Um, I mean, look, these institutions like that have been hollowed out after decades and decades, some of them are going to die, 
as part of the historical course. And I'm not really sure that there's anything that can be done to stop it. I'm already hearing people saying, when Starmer goes, let's get another, let's get Don Butler in, right? Which is a great idea. Um, that, you know, this kind of stuff is totally backwards in my eyes. If there's nothing, I don't necessarily, I don't agree with this, with, with uh, Yvette Cooper, Kat says, yeah. Uh, there's, some, there's a great lineup coming in next. Um, faulty as Corbin was, by the way, I think he was probably the best shout they ever had. I think he's better than McDonald, etc. Anyway, um, I think it's important over the coming period that left's not precious about these historical developments. And I think it's a terrible trap to get caught in this kind of stuff, to be so afraid of historical developments um, that you cling to these these dying uh, institutions. Um, So, yeah, and I'm sure we all basically agree about that. Yeah, I mean, I think I would just take it one step further. And I would say that this, you know, this is arguably the the left's role at the moment is to defend the status quo, particularly this fascism blackmail that you kind of mentioned. It's like this idea of, you know, be careful what you wish for. You could get you could get hungry. You could get you could get fascist. You could like anything other than rupture because rupture leads to fascism. And I think like that is. A, it's, it's a question like who who are we talking about when we're talking about um the left and what political function do they do they do they play what class interests do they do they serve because i think it you know it was quite a clarifying process through through brexit like to to basically think okay where where is it that where is it that people stand on the fundamental question of like do you want to change society or or are you too scared like are you un, are you prepared to take authority and responsibility um, or or not. And I, I think that's that will be one of the kind of the things that we'll see play out in the next the next few years. Um, and I guess it's like, you know, then it becomes a practical question, like on what side do you do you put yourself like, are you prepared to like to go against some like some people that you've that you that you know well and your your kind of your social circle in in defending something that's potentially disruptive. Um, or not maybe that's the challenge that i should have put to you know when you asked me like what what to do about it maybe that's the the the, the kind of the, the challenge to, to listeners in the next few years is going to be like what if we have other you know things like brexit or or these sorts of questions come up like is it is it part of that fascism blackmail that you have to essentially defend the status quo or do you say well actually no like this is this is the position um, that's in the interest of working class people this position that i'm i'm going to take and how like how where you stand on those sorts of issues i mean i think that yeah that fascism blackmail like or i mean what was the trump derangement syndrome um i, I mean i think that that type of role for the left is i think is going to become even bigger i think that that is the, the route that we're going down which is you know don't break anything unless you release some monsters um in its path and i think that, that was really clear um with the u.s presidential elections the fact that you know the the left needed to create a bogeyman one single dislikable entity um, in order to you know rouse itself like it is it's a symptom of this type of hollowness, like the, this political establishment, which has nothing positive to say and nothing concrete to offer. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's quite a sad point um, for, for the left. I mean, I, I see that you, you know, you said you were optimistic. Maybe I should 
catch some of that. Um, so yeah, reasons to be optimistic, you say, George? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's like an, any any um, any process which clarifies where people stand. That's a reason for for optimism. I mean, it might it might turn out, you know, we're not on the left; we're against the left. I mean, that's what happened in in Brexit, and that was, you know, that was. I think maybe that's something which I didn't really touch on in the, you know, when we're talking about the kind of end of history period. I was like, oh yeah, I'm a, you know, I'm a lefty. That means I'm cool. That means I'm kind of, you know. Actually, it just means I'm cool. That's that's basically what it means. Um, but now, actually, maybe that's not the case. Maybe, you know, there are different sort of different terms of, of, of kind of political division coming about. And that's, you know, that is a reason to be optimistic because you you then see where, you know, you see where people stand and you can see where, you know, whose side whose side people are on, which is, you know, which is, a, which is I think, a, a good thing because obviously one one characteristic of that transition from the end of history to the end of the end of history, or at least I would say, was that it was really unclear, like what was happening or more, there was a whole lot of cultural froth and culture wars around all these kind of things. Like you said about, about Trump, there was a really kind of the um, objective analysis. If you were looking for that, it was not possible to find in, in liberal newspapers, for example, if it ever is, but, like you know surely at least some who should know better just completely lost it so now you know maybe we're entering a situation where it will be good that that things are, are clearer um i think that is a reason for optimism yeah it's a nice uh, nice note for us to finish on i think too um we've been recording for about uh, ever and a bit uh after our pleasantries at the start so uh, thank you so much George for joining us and I really wish you all the best uh, with with the book and the podcast and hopefully once uh, we can we can get you up to Scotland and you can do a live event yeah that would be that would be fantastic actually I think we had a whole like uh, global tour planned like global tour in the sense of an excuse to to go to various places um, so yeah, we'd yeah we would be up for we'd be very much up for that. Magic. Well, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much. Um, it's great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah.